Good evening. Uh, for those that are joining us on Facebook, if you are looking at the notes on Sermon Audio, you have a correct date on your notes. For the rest of us, uh, this message was prepared for November 13th, and then we got sick, and then a bunch of other people got sick, and then uh, we had an annual congregational meeting, and so here we is. So uh, let's start by reading Romans 12, 9 to 13, and we'll pray. Starting in verse 9, love must be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Let's pray. Fathers, we come this evening, we thank you uh, for finally being able to get back together. Thank you now for this opportunity to look at this passage as we see a multitude of commands. We ask, Father, that you might open our hearts and minds to the things that you have for us in each one of these, and that we might put them into practice for your honor and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So the title here is The Supernatural Life. Uh, and this is part one because, uh, Lord willing, next week will be part two. <laughs> but uh, letter A, The Satisfying Life. Teddy Roosevelt wrote a, a paper, I guess, that you'd say, uh, talking about the pursuits that destroy. And within that, he pointed out that if you are seeking prosperity at any price, um, Milton Friedman talking about uh, the free market and economics. Uh, I was asked by Phil Donahue uh, why greed uh, was the motivating factor when it came to free market capitalism and things like that. And he pointed out that greed was actually a very good thing when it came to motivating people to work and make money. Now, though I wouldn't agree necessarily with greed being a good thing, uh, Milton Friedman had an, uh, an understanding that, look, if you can sit on your backside and uh, smoke dirty socks and play video games all day long and the government will take care of you, then why would you work? Now, at the same time, on the other side of the coin, Back in 1937, we decided that we were going to revise uh, the academic workbooks of schools. And then uh, before 1937, there were 26 reasons why we broke away from England. They're called the 26 Amendments there. Uh, not amendments, but the 26 reasons why we were breaking away in the Declaration of Independence. In 1937, one of those reasons became the primary focus as to why we broke away from England. Can anybody tell me what they are, what it is? Nope, not separation of church and state. That uh, was screwed up by another thing that happened about the 30s. No, it was taxation without representation. So what do we know the primary reason why we broke away from England? Money. And when you educate a generation of people that money is the most important thing, what do you think is going to happen to free market capitalism? 
Greed is going to become the primary focus. And Teddy Roosevelt wrote way back when that if you are seeking prosperity at any price, you are not going to find that which you're looking for, but you're going to have a pursuit that destroys you. And we can sit there and say, oh, please destroy me like Bill Gates. Don't worry. He'll get his due when the time comes. But think about his due. If God doesn't graciously work in his life, he can have all the money in the world and end up in hell for eternity. See what I'm saying? Okay, number two there, letter uh, B, peace at any price. Let's give away half of our country to China so they won't pick on us anymore. Peace at any price. Okay, forget America. How about give away half of Israel to the Palestinians? Do you think giving away half of Israel to the Palestinians will stop suicide bombers and missiles coming in from Hamas? Yeah, they, they want to wipe Israel off the map. Peace at any price is not something that can legitimately be sought because all it does is put the person that is seeking it into a, uh, uh, the mode of enslavement, okay? Another thing you said you couldn't, uh, a pursuit that destroys is safety first instead of duty first. Uh, we've seen a little bit of that in the past couple of years where we are willing to give up rights so that we can be safe. And of course, what did uh, Benjamin Franklin say a couple of hundred years ago? Anyone who is willing to give up uh, freedom for uh, safety will have neither. And that is the truth of the matter. Um, most of you know that after World War II, uh, there was a uh, trial of all the doctors that did all the medical things back in the day. It starts with an N. Nuremberg, thank you. I keep on thinking Normandy, and it's kind of like, nah, the, it's the Nuremberg. Uh, they developed a code as to what doctors are allowed to do within any kind of a free society, and it was pretty well accepted by most of the nations, and uh, it is, most of it has been codified in law in the United States of America. And we have what we call um, informed consent, where you need to be informed of the risk the benefits, and then you are free to make a decision. Within the past couple of years, we have basically told people, no, you have to have it. Now, it's against the law to do that, and yet they did. Because peace at any price. Everyone, safety needs, everyone needs to worry about everyone else's safety. Kind of like, yeah, no. Another pursuit that destroys is the love of soft living and get-rich theory of life. One of the difficulties I find within the Christian realm in this day and age is we are so accustomed to affluence and comfort that if the day comes that we actually experience suffering, what will our response be? Now, I'm not saying we're going to fall on our face and cry like little babies. Well, what I am saying is when you're so used to one and the other happens, what will be your response? Well, what's your response when you have a little trial? 
Nobody here complains about little trials that come into their life, right? Okay, now we're Christians. <laughs> so if we continue to pursue the concept of a comfortable life, the good life, the American dream, without understanding that God has called us to so much more than that, and the so much more includes not necessarily comfort. In fact, this morning we were in Sunday school, we read a few verses out of Corinthians, both first and second, and Paul was saying, look, we're like sheep to the slaughter. I die daily. And the whole idea was, I am a tool in God's hand, and if he chooses to use me as fodder in the war, and I end up getting killed, okay. If you're pursuing comfort, the idea that God would let something bad happen to you when you didn't do anything wrong is one of those ideas, I can't believe God would do that. You better believe it, okay? Because it's not about your comfort, it is about his glory, and so that's another pursuit that destroys. Notice the life that produces number two. First of all, the life that produces is a disciplined life. In 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27, it says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Uh, One of the things that I find that amazes and makes most people kind of, yeah, what about that? Is when Paul comes to the end of his life, what does he say? I have run the good race. I have fought the good fight. And I know there's waiting for me a crown. Most of us live our life thinking, boy, I kind of sure hope I got it right, and hopefully I might hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, we see here in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul was intentional about how he lived. Most of us, we kind of react to what happens in life. So if you're going to have a life that produces, one of the things is you've got to have a disciplined life. You've got to live on purpose, if you will. Notice the pursuits of anyone, uh, if they compete for a prize, uh, they are temperate or, if you will, controlled or disciplined in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown. A few years ago, uh, Hannah's husband, before they were married, decided that he wanted to go to a bodybuilding competition. So, of course, he's not a small guy anyway, (laughs) okay, and strong, lifting lots of weights, bulking up. And, of course, those last six weeks, they eat really super clean. There's no carbs, no sugar, What's wrong with them, right? Uh, and uh, so by the time, and then the last couple of weeks, they are diminishing the amount of water they drink so that the skin tightens up on the muscle and there's no fat to be seen or anything like that. And these guys are miserable. They, they really are. Ask anyone who's done a show, they are miserable. And they have to go up there and smile and 
you know, do all that kind of stuff. And yeah, nice. But when he got done with that show, he said, I will never do that again. Because the prize is not worth the effort. Okay, so that's the pursuits of anyone. How about the pursuits for believers? Notice he says, but we for an imperishable crown. I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection to not be disqualified. Now, I don't know about you, but as you get older, you kind of figure some of this stuff out. And uh, I think it was within one week I had two meetings with our seniors, and they, uh, well, not meetings as in a, a meeting, but, you know, talking to them. And they both reminded me that I'm fat. Kind of like, you know, it's something that the filter between the brain and the mouth, as you get older, it kind of fades away, disappears, and they just kind of tell you what they think. And kind of like, uh, do you realize that I probably eat less than a lot of people? My problem is, is I ate a lot more than a lot of people for a long time. And uh, now I, I'm still working out, still got a, a, a small amount of muscle in my body, but I don't eat that much. And yes, I do have my cheat day. I, I'm trying to be honest here, okay? Uh, but the reality is, is we don't eat poorly. And so why are you so fat? Uh, they didn't say that, but that's basically what they were saying. It's kind of like, well, part of it, genetics, okay? Part of it is that your body does come to a point where it's just so accustomed to handling any food you put in it a certain way that it doesn't change unless you drastically change your diet and stuff like that. Like, go on a fast for three or four days, and then your body thinks about, hey, this isn't fair, (laughs) that kind of a thing. Uh, But the reality is, is when we're talking about serving the Lord, we're doing it for an imperishable crown. And therefore, I'm disciplining this body. I am making it do what needs to be done. If that means saying no to myself on ice cream or cookies or something like that, that's what I do. Why? So, and I, to bring it into subjection so that when I've had the opportunity to preach to others, they're not pointing the finger at me and saying, yeah, but you... Okay, that's the idea here. So that brings us to The Disciplined Life by Richard Shelley, wrote a book called The Disciplined Life. And notice some of the things he points out. First of all, there needs to be a balance achieved by bringing faculties and powers under control. Richard Shelley is basically saying what Paul just said. Uh, I need to bring my faculties and powers under control. I need to bring my thinking under control. I need to bring my body under control. And I need to be governed by a sense of responsibility. When you think about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll direct your path. When life happens, do we do that? Or do we start thinking and reasoning and trying to figure it all out by ourselves? Uh, Lynn shared this morning with some of the teenage girls uh, a little bit about the life of King Asa. Uh, Asa was a a decent king for a period of time, but then somewhere in the rush kind of got off the path. And you can go and read in the Old Testament, a lot of guys did that. Uh, But when finally God said, look, you're, you're not seeking me, you need to straighten this up, 
He continued to go in the direction that he was going, so God struck him with an illness for his feet. And instead of repenting and turning back to God, he sought help from doctors. Now, can I tell you something? I'm not saying you shouldn't seek help from doctors. What I am saying is, within that, there also ought to be, Lord, is there something you're trying to get my attention on? Uh, Is there something I need to change? Or is this just because I live in a fallen body in a, a fallen world? Okay, uh, that, that's the idea of governed by a sense of responsibility. Everything I do is my offering to God at that moment. So therefore, I need to be considering what I'm going to be doing and why. Number three, see adversity is that which serves you. Uh, it says him there, but the idea is the person that is looking at the adversity. Okay, what is God trying to teach me here? If you evaluate uh, James chapter 1, that's basically what he's saying. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because God's doing something. He's making you more like Jesus, Romans chapter 8. He's trying to show you things that are in your heart that need to be put off so you can put on uh, godly behavior to replace that. Uh, He says in, uh, I think it's verse 21-ish, therefore laying aside all that remains of weakness... Uh, uh, wickedness, uh, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Okay? So, see adversity as that which serves the person that's looking. And then, uh, number four, submit to learn what adversity is teaching. And again, if you are laying aside all that remains of wickedness, you're seeing, okay, what was my response when that guy cut in front of me in traffic? I said, oh, God bless you. Or... I said, why are you? Okay, if it was the second one, ah, a little bit of flesh still operating there. Okay, Lord, uh, definitely got to change that. Because if I'm going to love my enemies, my enemies are probably going to cut me off in traffic. Okay, so change my heart. Cleanse me, change my heart, make me more like Jesus. Give me grace to respond properly. Guess what God's going to do? Someone else is going to cut you off in traffic. He's going to give you another opportunity, another test. I don't like tests. Tough. That's part of life. Now, will you learn from it? And then the next time say, okay, praise the Lord. I didn't get into the accident that that guy uh, didn't think about when he did what he did. And you move on. Lord, uh, bless him and give him grace to get where he's got to go. So uh, submit to learn what adversity teaches. Let us see. Self-discipline is willingness to submit. Willingness to submit personal desires and objectives to that which is selfless and divine. You know, when young people are going through youth group, very often they're thinking about, okay, what college am I going to go to? What am I going to do for a living? Who am I going to marry? All those things that are just really, really important at that time of life. And the reality is, is If you trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him, will He direct your path? Will He point you in the direction of which school you might go to or what trade you might study? And will He bring a person that will be good for you into your life at the time that is necessary? I can tell you that uh, Lynn and I met by me picking her up on the side of the road. 
Now that day, I was helping my buddy pay for his engagement ring. I was filling his gas tank because I was making a little bit more money than he was. We were both working for a ministry in Upper State, New York. And that morning, I had said to the Lord, Lord, you know how bad I want to get married. I think I've wanted to get married since I was about three, you know, uh, hoping that I might be able to do a better job than my parents did because that was about the time they got divorced. Uh, but uh, I've always wanted to have someone in my life, and, and I have pursued this, and Lord, I'm not going to do that anymore. I am not going to ask a girl for a date uh, or anything like that. I am going to wait until you bring someone into my life. And we'll probably be talking about this again soon <laughs> because I, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to start wanting to have a girlfriend or something like that. And um, so I go across the street. I get my buddy. We go down. We buy the ring. We go to the gas station. And the bus goes by and drops off three girls, 14 pieces of luggage. Two of the girls decide they're going to walk down to the campground, and uh, one of them is guarding the luggage. She was a little bit more muscular than the other two, apparently. Um, so my buddy goes over and talks to Lynn, and uh, he comes back. We get in the car. We drive across the street to pick up this one girl and 14 pieces of luggage. And I asked her, so, running away from home? And she goes, what? I'm like, oh, one girl, 14 pieces of luggage? What am I supposed to think? Do you think they could get away from home without 14 pieces of luggage? I don't know about you. But th that's how we met. And the reality is, is from there, it's just amazing, as you follow the rest of the story, how God put the two of us together. But why? Because I had finally come to a point where it's kind of like, okay, God, it's in your hands. Okay? Now, can I tell you, the first several years were difficult because she wasn't as mature as I thought she was. <laughs> because we both had a little bit of growing up to do, right? Uh, but look, it's how he does it. When you are ready to submit your personal desires and objectives to that which is selfless and divine. Number two, willingness to submit that which is attractive and easy the flesh, to that which is right and necessary. Submitting yourself to the Word of God, even though, as the old song, uh, it feels so right it can't be wrong. It's kind of like, no, it can feel right all you want and still be very, very wrong. One of the problems that we have in our society today, people are running by how it feels instead of what a standard that God has set down is all about. So that brings us to the supernatural life, uh, number three, letter A, conducted uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1, 27 says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So uh, a supernatural life is going to be conducted in a manner worthy uh, a couple months ago, I, I spoke on the whole concept of walking worthy of your calling. Uh, basically, walking in the Spirit, okay? Uh, the supernatural life includes having a mindset like Christ. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And within the context, though he was God, didn't demand that, hey, everybody, I just want you to know I'm God. Treat me up accordingly. No, no, he humbled himself, took on the form of a certain uh, servant, and then submitted himself 
to the Father, even unto the death of the cross. I, I don't know about you, but you know, I've thought about the concept of persecution and suffering. And throughout my life, it's kind of like, Lord, if I'm preaching the gospel and someone wants to come up and punch me in the face, uh, okay, I, I can handle that. No one's ever punched me in the face when I was preaching the gospel. But then, what is it, going on three weeks ago? I'm here. The Bible says that we are the scent of death to those who are dying. And we're the scent of life to those who are living, those that have eternal life. I end up getting attacked after I've said, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, why did that happen? Uh, go back up a little bit and talk about see adversity as that which serves him. Okay, uh, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily know the purpose, but I do recognize that I had to evaluate things. Did I do something to agitate the situation? Uh, so on and so on and so forth. As far as I, I, I don't know what the spiritual uh, state of the other person is. What I do know is Satan is behind the scenes. Okay, and I'm a child of the Father of Lights. And so what would he have done? Attack that guy. Okay? It was spiritual warfare because there was no reason for it to happen. Uh, That one's a little bit harder to accept because I didn't do anything to deserve it. No, it has nothing to do with deserving. It has to do with are you willing to submit yourself and be humble and have the mindset like Christ? And then letter C, working out your salvation with fear. In Philippians 2.12 or in verse 13, knowing that it is God who works in us. And again, you can look those verses up. Those are basically the phrases I wanted you to catch. And then, of course, letter D, conforming our outer life to what is true on the inside. I have five children, two daughters and three sons. love each one of them. I'm proud of how they've grown uh, there are things that I see in each one of them that, ooh, God, you're going to have to work on that one. Because, you know, they're 30 to, well, they're 27 to what? That's all? Yeah, 36. <laughs> uh, 27, I thought she was older. <laughs> uh, 27 to 36 years of age. And, and some of the things they say, they kinda, it kind of lets you know a little bit of what's going on in their heart. You're kind of like, oh, man. Oh, Lord. I pray for my kids regularly that God would do that which is necessary to draw them to himself, that they would take on attitudes that are in, uh, conforming to the word of God. Uh, why? Well, I wasn't a perfect parent, number one. They weren't perfect kids, number two. And let me see, how long did it take for us to grow up? Oh, yeah, still doing it. Thanks a lot, dear. You're supposed to at least make them think I'm mature. No, uh, you know, the, the first several years, as I already pointed out, of our marriage were difficult years. Well, they're beyond the first several years, or at least uh, one of them is uh, beyond the first several years, but growing up takes time. And so I am praying. Why? Because God's going to be the one that has to conform their outer lives to that which is true on the inside. They're going to have to figure out that what some of the things they think are not necessarily biblical. And how does God do that? Normally through trials, difficulties, 
Okay, that kind of thing. So that brings us down to the duty of each believer, letter B. First of all, let love be without hypocrisy, verses 9a. The word love there is agape, love, affection, or benevolence, charity, charitably, uh, dear. Uh, in 1 Timothy uh, 1.5, it says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. When we talk about agape love, we're talking about, everybody wants to say, well, it's God's type of love. It is loving the other person, doing what's best for the other person without a consideration of the cost to oneself. Uh, Paul uh, talks in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 6, where he talks about them taking their brothers and sisters to court because something had happened where financially they felt as though they were ripped off, so they went to court, secular court, to resolve an issue. And it's kind of like, you should have just taken the loss. Why are you putting all of this bad stuff in, the, uh, in the front of uh, unbelievers? Take the loss. And the only one that's going to take the loss is the one that's going to love, in an agape sense. Doing what's best for the other person without consideration of the cost to oneself. Okay, notice letter I there. The, uh, it is centered on the needs of the loved one, not on the cost of the one loving. It is the most important virtue, according to 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, where it says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Uh, we uh, prayed for increased love. Paul prayed for increased love in the First Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verse 12, for the Thessalonians whom he already had commended because their love had shown in such a way that he didn't even have to speak about it throughout all of Achaia. And in First uh, Thessalonians, he says, as soon as I find it, there it is, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Now, what is Paul praying? That God would have such an impact in your life that his love would be shown forth in your life toward other people. That you would grow up spiritually and act like Jesus Christ. That's what he's praying for, okay? Uh, so notice also he says, uh, that which endures hardship in 2 Corinthians 6, 4-6, to but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Once again, the idea of taking the loss when there's a conflict between people where, okay, I don't have to have my way in this thing. I'm going to do what's best for the other person. Uh, that, that's the idea here. A love endures hardship. Uh, ben, last year, I think we did 1 Corinthians in Sunday school. We got to chapter 13, and in verses 4 to 7, we got three verses, we have four verses, 4, 5, 6, 7. Um, I came up with 44 questions talking about love. 44 questions in four verses. Just so we could really get down to the nitty-gritty and see what real agape love is all about. I don't know about you, but 
Go look at it. Four very small verses. You know, love endures all things and believes all things and all, all those kinds of things. The Bible says an awful lot about love, and love endures hardship. It puts up with, go back to our marriage, those first several years. If it wasn't for Lynn being willing to submit herself to God and say, Lord, he's a dingbat. Please give me grace to put put up with him. I'm not sure what would have happened. But love endured hardship. It was love for God in that particular case. There were times when she loved me. Other times when I wasn't very lovable. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then number three, it is a sign of true salvation. In First uh, John three fourteen, it says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. This morning as we were talking to the deacons, I said, Keep your eyes on the Lord. Why? Because people can be a pain. And believe me, as someone who grew up sometimes within the ministry, uh, there were plenty of times when I, I, you guys have heard it, I'm going to move to Montana and preach to the squirrels. You know, and I, I think I had one of those recently. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the reality is, is if you don't keep your eyes on the Lord, if you put your eyes on people, oh boy, the love goes out the window, okay? And uh, that can't be for a believer, a believer's got to keep his eyes where they belong. So that uh, notice it says, let love be without hypocrisy. The word for hypocrisy is anupokritos, uh, undissembled, uh, sincere, without dissimulation, hypocrisy, unfeigned. So this is the idea of this love being untainted by selfishness. It is the antithesis and incompatible with agape love. Um, and again, this is where, as believers, I think we need to submit ourselves to growing up. Because we find that we have expectations of other believers. What does pastor say about expectations? Well, if your expectation is here, and the performance is here, he calls this the gap of bitterness. If they don't perform to what you expected, now you've got something that you're hurt about and you don't like and you're angry with and go ahead and sleep on that and you're bitter and now you're going to let everybody else know how disappointed you are. That's another word we like to use to let them know that we really haven't done anything wrong. We're disappointed with those people. Give it up. Okay? The reality is is If that's the way you're going to be, you're being hypocritical. You're not loving. That's the whole point. And that brings us to number two. Abhor what is evil, verse 9b. Uh, Notice the other side of love in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6. It says, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. That's uh, true about love. Um, Evil is the antithesis of holiness. Think about that for just a moment. It's contrary. It's uh, the opposite of holiness. Psalm 97.10, You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Romans seven fourteen through 15. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. And then uh, verses 19 through 21. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. You can see Paul, as a new creature, hates the old that's still in him. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know that battle in Romans chapter 7. I think we spend probably a good portion of our life in Romans 7 trying to figure it out. And it's only when we come to the conclusions that Paul comes to at the end of Romans chapter 7 and in the beginning of chapter 8 do we finally get the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus delivers me from the law of sin and death. It's only because of what he's doing in me that I can get through this. So evil is the antithesis of holiness. And then top of the next page, letter C, genuine hatred of evil causes avoidance of evil. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight. He takes pleasure in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Again, it always goes back to lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he directs those paths. Okay, And then, of course, 9c, the third thing he says is cling to what is good. The word cling there is kalao, to glue, to stick, to cleave, to join uh, oneself to, to keep company with. And the word for good there is agathos, which is inherently good. Uh, again, when we talk about um, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to give an account for the things we've done in the body, whether they be good or bad. The word good there is agathos. Agathos is only that which is done by the power of the Spirit. You can do all kinds of religious things that most people are going to look at and say are good. But if you're doing it in your own reason, your own strength, you're not trusting in the Lord it's not going to be good. It's going to burn up. And so that's where we see this whole need for the supernatural life to do uh, that which he has called us to do. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything uh, praiseworthy, meditate or think on these things. And then, of course, how? How can we cling to what is good? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. This morning I was listening to a report on this Balenciaga thing that uh, has gone on. I don't listen to the news, so I kind of find out things maybe a little bit later. But I actually got to see some of the pictures. 
And these kids are standing there. The, the kids are dressed fine, at least the two pictures I saw. But they're holding a teddy bear that's got BDSM uh, type uh, leather straps and you know the ball in the mouth and that kind of stuff, um, which is just a sick, perverted thing that some people are involved in. And then I heard the letter that Balenciaga put out as a quote-unquote apology. Kind of like, well, some people say this, but there's no but. It is BDSM type stuff on this teddy bear. And then they had another picture of an actual Supreme Court case where child porn was deemed not part of free speech. So they're trying to send a message through this photo uh, shoot, and they excused everything. Well, you know, it wasn't good taste, and yeah, we'll, we'll kind of straight, but no, no responsibility. It's kind of like, you can see why people are upset about the whole thing, especially when Hollywood's sitting there saying, but I like my Balenciaga stuff. Yeah, so, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but again, uh, these people cling to what is good? No, they, they have no concept of what is good. Letter B, the duty of each believer in relation to the family of God. Verses 10 through 13. Number one, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Uh, the uh, kindly affection here is philostorgos. Uh, the word philos there comes from phileo, okay? So fond of natural relatives, fraternal toward fellow Christians. Uh, this goes back to this whole idea that uh, we love one another. Okay, now there may be times when we don't like each other very well. Remember what Pastor's story about having the four brothers, and if you picked on one of the brothers, you got all four of them, uh, that kind of thing. And they would fight among themselves. But uh, we have our stories of uh, the boys down in Brazil. Uh, apparently, they were uh, some of the kids, the missionary kids, were picking on Joseph, and they threw him in the pool uh, at the... Uh, compound where they had the school. So, of course, his two big brothers uh, picked those boys up and threw them in the pool, <laughs> uh, that kind of a thing. Um, now, d- did they always get along with Joseph? No. In fact, Joseph was in the midst of just about every fight that went on in our family. It was either Joseph and Rachel, Joseph and Jonathan, Joseph and Daniel, Joseph and Hannah. Uh, I don't know what it is about Joseph, but he actually convinced Hannah for a period of time that she was adopted because we didn't have a lot of pictures of her when she was a baby. Uh, you know, Twisted kid, takes after his mother, what can I say? Uh, but uh, whole point being, though, uh, the idea of loving one another, you know? Uh, and, and again, this is a brotherly love type thing. Uh, notice philos, friend or friendship love, and storge, natural family love. And then, of course, uh, with brotherly love, Philadelphia, don't go there uh, thinking that somehow you're going to find that but that's what the city is uh, supposed to stand for. Fraternal affection, brotherly love or kindness, love of the brethren. The two words with the same meaning indicate the devotion to doing it. When he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, he's saying, get serious, guys. Love one another like family does. And again, within that, we recognize there may be conflicts. Get past it. Love each other. Okay, uh, notice one of the marks of a true Christian, John 13, 35, 1 John 4, 20, and 5, 1. Uh, it reflects the true nature of the Christian. Remember that um, we're the scent of death to those who are dead and the scent of life 
to those that are living. Uh, the reality is, is when you smell the other Christians, you know those are ones I got to love. Yeah, sometimes we struggle, but I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to choose to recognize that's part of my family. That's, that's what he's saying here. Number two, in honor, giving preference to one another, uh, 10b. Now, let me read how it says it in the uh, Holman Christian Standard. Outdo one another in showing honor. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there's some people will honor. Pastor, you know, well, a lot of people will honor pastor. Some people, you know, it's kind of, oh, I got to put up with him. I don't know. Uh, Dave Tyler, yeah, uh, I'm not sure we we do that real well in the office. Outdo one another in honoring one another. Uh, pastor sneaks up on him and blows his uh, shofar, scares the living daylights out of him. Uh, he comes in and asks me what I what uh, if I'm going to wear this for Halloween, you know. Uh, but apparently that's how we show honor to one another. We, we pick on each other. We, uh, we normally have a good time about it. But uh, when it's time to get serious, we get serious. But uh, notice the natural consequence of the concepts of brotherly love as seen above. It deals with humility. Uh, it is interesting. You know, I've been here 93 to 98, 04 to the present. And uh, back in the day, I, I was a young guy, didn't know much, and um, I'm sure a lot of people put up with an awful lot of things. But as I grew to see that things that I said actually were taken by leadership as, hey, that's right. That, that, was, that was great as a uh, younger, younger, not young, younger person uh, in the faith uh, to see that I was being honored in that way. That's the idea here. Uh, Romans 12.3 uh, says, uh, if I can ever find it. Oh, well, I guess I've skipped so many verses. There it is. Well, it's right there in this chapter. Let's just turn the page here. 12.3 says, uh, For by the grace given to me, I tell every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Uh, this past week, a gentleman came in looking for a book on resolving conflict. And of course, Wednesday night, Pastor spoke on that. A couple weeks ago, I spoke on that, hitting it a little bit different uh, from both of those. But uh, he goes, among church leaders. And I said, look, conflict resolution is easy. Just get the people out of the way. Because what's the problem with conflict resolution? I'm right, you're wrong. Well, you might be right to some measure. You might not have all of the facts to be totally right. And maybe you need to listen to the other opinion, that kind of thing. So uh, that's the idea here of dealing with humility. Philippians 2, 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And of course, in honor, giving preference to one another. Uh, the word for preference here is time, or, t- or it looks like time. Uh, a value, money paid, or valuables. Esteem, especially of the highest degree, or the dignity itself. 
honor precious price some. The idea is you are looking at the other person as someone who has value, someone that you should be listening to, someone that you should be ministering to, that kind of thing. And then, of course, uh, this is not flattery. Flattery is where I'm saying nice things about you so that I can get something, but it is to show genuine appreciation. Uh, The longer I've been here, the more I've gotten to know people, the more I genuinely appreciate, though they minister different than I do, they're ministering in areas that I don't have that opportunity. And it is neat to see because for years, it's kind of like, no one's doing any evangelism. No one's talking to people about Jesus. And uh, well, that's not true. Okay. But you got to get to know people and understand uh, how God may be using them. Uh, the word for, um, gee, where am I? There I is. <laughs> giving preference to one another uh, is proegeomai, uh, to lead the way for others, to show deference or to prefer. Again, it's the idea of you're putting someone else above yourself. Uh, you're becoming their servant, their disciple, that kind of thing. Number three, not lagging in diligence. Verse 11a, the word not lagging literally means not lazy in zeal and intensity. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, see then that you work circ- walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Uh, the idea of redeeming the time is you're buying back, you're making every moment count, uh, that kind of thing. So you're not lazy in zeal or intensity. Uh, diligence, it refers to whatever believers do. In Hebrews 6, 10 through 12, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you should, uh, each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So when do you get to retire from serving the Lord in the church? Until the end. End of what? your life, your time here on earth. There is no, quote-unquote, retirement from serving the Lord. And that service to the Lord shows itself in the way we treat one another. Okay? Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. The word fervent there is zeo, to be hot, to boil. Speaking of liquids, to glow, of solids, to be fervid, earnest to be fervent. It's not boiling over or out of control, but having sufficient heat to get the work done. As I've gotten older, uh, this has become a little bit more of a problem. Uh, When I was younger, uh, I would have five things on my things to do list on my day off, and boy, I'd go to town, and I would get those five things done. Now I have one thing in hope that I might get it done. Because I know what's going to happen. Uh, 20-minute job on an engine. One bolt broken. What happens? There you go. It seems like that's how life works, but it still means you're about the business of working 
regardless of it's one thing or five things. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, number five, serving the Lord, 11C. It deals with perspective and priority. Uh, one of the things I've been saying for a while is, as we consecrate the Lord God in our hearts, the things that we do in our public setting, we go to work, we do whatever it is we do for work. I don't care if you're a carpenter, uh, an office professional, or, or whatever, because you're serving, you're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're letting the word of Christ dwell in you originally. You're walking in the spirit. You are doing whatever it is that you're doing the way God would want you to do. And that's the whole point here. You are uh, serving the Lord. It deals with perspective and priority. Letter B, everything done should be consistent with God's word and for his glory. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That brings us to rejoicing in hope, number six, verse 12a. Uh, Luke 10.20 says, Nevertheless, I do, I do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Um, in uh, Romans 5.2, But we glory in tribulation, in trials, in difficulties. Uh, and then, of course, 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding uh, joy. So rejoicing in hope, faith in what God has promised in the future. Okay? Um, when we consider suffering, when we consider difficulties, God told us this was going to be part of life here. The, the, the peace and the comfort and, and all of that, that's later when everything's been perfected, at least in us, okay? Um, Romans eight twenty four to 25. For we, uh, we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what does one still hope for what he, uh, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're not looking at the trials and the difficulties uh, of the race. We're looking unto the author and finisher of the faith. That's the idea uh, that we see here. Um, notice understanding that our labor or our suffering is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Galatians 3, 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And of course, you got two different audiences there. One is getting caught up in false teaching, and the other one, uh, they, they were kind of messed up on everything. But notice his command, be about the business, okay? So that brings us to patient in tribulation, verse 12b. Because we have assurance concerning the future, look back at rejoicing in hope, letter B, we can persist in what is right regardless of the suffering involved. And again, uh, Romans 5, 2-5, uh, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, 
Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, uh, uh, patient in tribulation. Uh, Number eight, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Uh, The word continuing here is proskartereo, to be earnest towards, to persevere, to be constantly diligent. Um, It is not just a request, but it is communion with. It's the idea of John 15, uh, abiding in Christ. Uh, You know, you can talk to him about the real needs that you have. No, you can talk to him about everything. He is walking with you. I really appreciated, it might have been Wednesday night, Pastor talked about uh, God being our banner. The Lord, the Lord is our banner. He goes before us. He walks beside us. He, he covers our backside. Uh, he watches our six, if you will. Uh, whole point being is he's with us all the time. So to be trusting in the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledging him would indicate you're in communion with him. You're talking to him. You're talking to him about anything and everything because that's uh, the idea of continuing steadfastly in prayer. That brings us to number nine, distributing to the need of the saints. The word distributing there is koinoneo, uh, to share with others, to communicate, to distribute, to be a partaker. Acts 2.42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. So they were constantly uh, meeting each other's needs, that kind of thing. They were uh, sharing. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Galatians 6.10 says, Do good unto all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And again, this goes back to that idea of being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, because they're part of the family, so you take care of them. In our benevolence ministry, we have people come in once a year, and we help out with about $100. Now, I might help out with $150, $125, it may be $67. But then we get the occasional person within the church. They're members. They... uh, they might have messed up when it came to paying their bills. They may, life may have happened. Something came up that wasn't expected. And now all of a sudden, they need a new air conditioner. We've paid for it. Well, I'll pay you back. If God so moves you, we're going to do good unto all men, but especially to the household of faith. Uh, that's the idea there. Okay, and then number 10, given to hospitality. Literally, this says, pursuing the love of neighbors. Not just believers, but non-believers also. It is one of those things that is required of elders, Titus 1.8, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. It is also uh, the idea of doing it to those who cannot repay. Luke 14, 12 to 14. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, 
for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I remember uh, Labor Day, been a few years ago. We invited Kenny and uh, Poppy. And apparently within the African-American community, kind of like the Latin community, when you invite someone, they invite somebody else. Now, thankfully, Kenny told us about this. Uh, and we ended up having, I think, three or four families over for a Labor Day picnic. Um, can I tell you, none of those people could, would ever invite us over to their house. Not because they didn't want to be able to do something. They, they didn't have the means to do it. And it ended up being a blessing. Uh, they even liked our food, which is always nice too. Uh, but I remember down in Brazil, how many times we would, hey, let's invite so-and-so over. And he would invite two other families. And, you know, you make food for 12 and 20 show up. Uh, uh, it's an embarrassment. You're not supposed to do that kind of thing. But uh, that's the idea here, uh, doing it to those who cannot repay you. And then number uh, letter D, doing it without complaint. First uh, Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Uh, today we were talking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't be offended, okay? Everybody's got different taste buds. But we were talking about uh, potlucks. And uh, when my kids were younger and they were coming to church here, they would complain anytime we had a potluck because they said, some of our people, I think they make the, you know, they, they make whatever's in the fridge. They just kind of throw it all together. And then we get in line and we want mom's food. And it's all gone by the time we get there. Uh, I, I think one time Lyndon made an apple pie and one of the kids was going to get the last piece and Joseph, Joseph, uh, went over there and scooped that thing out of there before that kid could get it. It's kind of like, this is my mother's apple pie, I'm eating it. It's kind of, whoa. <laughs> now, uh, do I think that everyone at church is making the worst meal they possibly could just so they can get the Osden uh, menu? Uh, no, not for, a, not for a moment, okay? Uh, but the reality is, is uh, we're to be hospitable without complaining. Uh, I've eaten enough people's foods around here to know that there, there's plenty of good stuff there. Now, I love it when Wayne Cormier makes a salad. Okay, he makes a salad in a bowl that big, and it's got like everything in it. Wonderful. Um, there, there are other things that people make that I have a great appreciation for also. But uh, again, be hospitable. Do it without complaining. Because these are, if you will, if you're born again, these are the areas where God is trying to work and make you more like Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, so, any questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, obviously we're going to be serving the Lord in heaven too, but uh, the, the mentality is I've done my part. Now the younger people need to get on it. And of course, the younger people are saying, I'm too busy. No, you're all supposed to be involved in ministry. It's many hands make light work. It's not this age group or that age group, that kind of thing. That's the point I was trying to get across. Yeah, uh, this is God's boot camp, if you will. Yeah. So, well, let's close in prayer and we'll let you go. See you again Wednesday. Father, we do thank you. You have been so good to us. You have made us new people and you've shown us how to live as new people. 
we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds, that if we see that we have not been diligent, not been submissive, not been loving to one another, not letting things go, that kind of thing, Lord, change us. Change our hearts, cleanse us, give us grace to live as lights shining in the midst of a uh, dark and perverse generation, which definitely is a description that we can apply today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.